Welcome, everybody, to Sanctuary Church. Welcome to Calling All Peacemakers Sunday. Welcome to Church Online. It is great to be with you. Look forward to uh, seeing your faces right at the uh, conclusion of Church Online today in Zoom as we take communion. Uh, before I jump in, and we have a lot of ground to cover today, before I jump into the message, I wanted to say thank you to John. Uh, what just an incredible worship leader, um, devotional prayer leader. Um, and I wanted to let you know at the end of uh, my talk, before we jump to Zoom, uh, I asked John to play this one last song that uh, encapsulates in the most perfect way, I, I think, kind of... Um, what's happening in our cultural moment right now and, uh, and hopefully helps us to reflect on everything that I'm gonna share here in just a moment. So thank you again, John. Check out his music, uh, follow him online. He's got just, his new record is absolutely incredible. Um, let's take a minute to be still together. I'm gonna pray for us and then we are gonna jump right in. Help us, Lord, to be able to be still together and to know and trust that you are God, to find rest in you. Lord, we know that the truest thing about us, God, is that we are your daughters and sons that we are found in you because of your grace, because what you have accomplished, Lord, on the cross and in your resurrection. And so I just pray for folks who are brand new to the way of Jesus, to folks who have been uh, just in a season of great discouragement, folks that are wrestling with depression or despair, and, and of course, those that are just on the mountaintop, Lord, we as a community right now, scattered about engaging this on screens, Lord. We know that we are probably all over the map. Lord, but we know that you, um, Lord, can draw us together in unity. God, that you um, uh, meet us, each one of us as individuals, where we are at. And so as we often pray, Lord, give us expectant hearts as we engage the scriptures today. Pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to begin today in Mark 3. And um, if you are new with us, this may feel like a funny place to begin. But I want to start with a little uh, context to kind of set up this image of Jesus that we don't often look at. Now there's a number of passages throughout um, much of the New Testament, and especially the Gospels. Uh, these are the accounts where we're learning about what the life of Jesus was like, what it was like to interact with him, where he is having these encounters or these confrontations with uh, the Pharisees or various different religious factions. These are all part of his tribe, uh, this, these Hebrew people, this Jewish tribe, this Israel that is in uh, exile uh, and that is a, being a, sort of oppressed, governed by Rome. And so Jesus is getting into all of these, uh, these conflicts many times about how the Hebrew people would relate to Rome and many times just about how to engage with, uh, with the law because the Pharisees uh, wanted to make sure that these Jewish people were following uh, Torah, following uh, their scriptures um, 
in all the right sorts of ways. There was a sort of a zeal that if we can do this, then things can be made right. Then somehow Rome will, uh, will be able to conquer Rome. There's all sorts of different angles, but point being is Jesus is constantly having these confrontations with the Pharisees. Now Mark 3, verse 3, we read, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, referring here to the Pharisees, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. This again is a pretty normal thing. They're looking to trap him. They don't like what he is doing and the disruption he is causing. It goes on. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Now, a few things you need to know. Sabbath is an important command in the Torah, in the, the, the Jewish scriptures. The goal for every person was to live Torah. Torah was called the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I came to show you what the Torah actually looks like on display. So Sabbath is all about not doing any work. It's about resting, it's about worshiping, it's about resetting. And there are all of these different um, interpretations of what is work. What's work to you, what's not work to you, what you should do, what you can't do. And different rabbis who you would follow, you'd follow their teachings, had different interpretations of what to do. Now in verse three, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus here is looking for a fight. And then Jesus asks in this story, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? The discussion here is about sides. Which side are you on? Where do you line up? Jesus is going right for it. Jesus rejects their whole paradigm and just asks a totally different question. Right? He changes the discussion. And so we keep reading. They remain, the Pharisees remain silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Let's pause for a moment. Jesus gets angry. Now, the word for anger here in the Greek has this idea of desire mixed with grief, desire mixed with grief. It's also in the eros tense, which is interesting to someone out there, I'm sure. Here's why this is important to note. It's an anger that comes on Jesus in the moment. It's temporary. It isn't petty. It's not selfish anger that just blows its top. In other words, he's not carrying the anger around. Desire that is mixed with grief. This is really interesting, right? Like, do you know about the Jesus who gets angry? If our goal, like Tony just shared a few minutes ago, for our communities that we would become apprentices, followers of Jesus, we need then to wrestle with this, the anger of Jesus. Now, if Jesus is showing us like we're told in scriptures, what God is like. If he is God, if he is representing ultimate reality in flesh and blood, this actually makes a lot of sense because throughout the scriptures, we find God, we find the divine getting angry. And often in our efforts to articulate a God of love, 
We leave out a God of wrath and we leave out a God of anger and we leave out the God of judgment. And I just wanna humbly submit to you that if we have a God of love, we actually have to have a God who gets angry. So what does that divine anger look like? Uh, Turn with me if you would to Amos 5. Amos 5. God here is talking to a group of religious people through the prophet Amos about their religious gatherings. So he's talking to them about the way they do church. He says in verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. In Amos 8, we read, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when, uh, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Right? He's saying you are so obsessed with being wealthy. You sell people dirt mixed with wheat. Like you take advantage of the poor. Literally, I wish you'd stop singing. You're making me sick. So when we talk about a God who gets angry, like which is more disturbing? A God who can see the brokenness of the world and not get angry? Or a God who sees it and does nothing? A God who, who says war, like, yeah, yeah, but, but you know, but, but no biggie. Or a God who says, I am going to make and am making all things new. This isn't new. We get this idea um, that in the first part of the Bible, that God is, uh, I don't know, if you came up in the kind of tradition I did, like God in the Old Testament is sort of cranky and mad. And then he like, God like switches it up when he gets to Jesus and just says like, do whatever you want, you know, as long as you don't hurt anybody in your eyes. Like we shouldn't find God's anger disturbing. Now, back to Jesus and the story. The religious people want to do nothing. They don't want to, it's Sabbath. So we probably shouldn't do that. We probably shouldn't heal this person. And Jesus is angry about it. I'm guessing, uh, like most of you, um, I, I don't know, I get, I get angry. <laughs> I get angry at small things. Maybe you don't really have a temper. Maybe it's this low-grade, passive-aggressive kind of thing. I think many of us are angry at injustice and angry at tribalism and angry at the media and angry at political rhetoric, just the state of the world. Have you ever noticed like just how nuclear anger is? Like just how powerful it is, whether it's a small thing or a big thing that is provoking us. My wife and I like to, um, we like to answer spam calls and engage just like for the sport of it. Um, 
I'm not suggesting this is a, a holy activity, by the way. Uh, it usually starts with like baiting them a little. So you get the phone call and then you're just sort of asking them, um, you know, as the conversation goes on, uh, you know, you're asking them a few questions. So they, they sort of start to come in a little bit. And then uh, you just sort of turn on a dime in the same sort of tone saying like, are you okay with your life's work amounting to trying to scam like the elderly, for instance? Um, <laughs> Uh, I scare myself a little. The best is when Corey feels compelled to dispute like a small charge, even on a bill. It's like everybody in our house has to clear the area because it's both sort of calm and composed, if you know my wife, and somehow unbelievably brutal at the same time. There is a nuclear force within you that is attached to anger. Have you ever scared yourself a little bit when you get angry? You ever sort of like... You're taken aback a bit. <laughs> you say things that cause you to go, ah, did, I, did I just say that? You ever broken anything? Kicked anything? Used a word you don't normally use? <laughs> it's interesting how you can find someone who is apathetic or depressed and you give them something to get angry about and it just sort of can wake them up and they're off, whatever it is. It produces serious energy. It's like an adrenaline rush almost. So, so the question of this story with Jesus in Mark 3 is what does Jesus do with his anger? Mark 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus's anger leads to healing. Jesus's anger leads to restoration. And so the natural question for me as a father of Jesus is, what does my anger lead to? Does my anger make the world a better place? Does my anger um, move to a demonstration of the radical love of God? For Jesus, his anger gets channeled into a specific act of renewal. See, I don't think the problem that we have in our culture is our anger. So often the problem is simply what we get angry about and then what we actually do with it. Like th this isn't the only place that we see this. You can find this throughout the scriptures. In, uh, in John 2, uh, chapter thir or, uh, verse 13, John 2, 13, we read, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Right after he clears the temple, it says that, quote, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. It's like anger at the right things can unlock some beautiful things. Uh, in Galatians 5, 
the context here, uh, Paul has been going around talking about Jesus, talking about grace, talking about a God of love, articulating a God who loves you, telling people you don't have to do anything to earn that love. And so trailing behind him, as you would guess, were some religious people who saw circumcision as a sign of the covenant of God. Um, this is a whole long backstory I don't have time to get into, but basically this religious ritual that was important to, the, to these people, going around saying in order to be a Christian, you have to do all of the Hebrew stuff. So like 49-year-old men need to go get circumcised. Uh, kids, if you're watching and have questions about all this, you can talk to mom and dad. Paul <laughs> is correcting this. There's this controversy about what he is doing, sharing the love of God with people. And Paul is furious because people are saying that Jesus is not enough. So read with me in Galatians chapter five. Mark my words, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. He's angry. Cut in on you. Emasculate themselves. Like take, the time, take some time to read some commentaries. Like if you're not getting the jokes here. They are ruining the good news and then he says in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Paul takes his anger and channels it into telling the story of Jesus, the story of grace. He does this again and again and again. His anger fuels his call to bring freedom and to bring love and to bring truth. I'm sure that you have heard people ask the question in regards to uh, your calling or your vocation or your mission in life. Ask the question like, what do you love? We often ask that question. I ask that question to people like, what do you love? What do you desire? Whether you're like just entering into college, just exiting college, whether you're entering into like quarter life crisis, midlife crisis, like towards the fourth quarter of your life as you're reevaluating over and over. What's the mission? We ask, what do you love? What do you desire? What are you into? But what about the question, what makes you angry? Like what gets you riled up? Like there's 2.6 billion people in the world that lack safe, like of the 2.6 billion people, 40% of the world lacking safe sanitation. Or, or over 1 billion people um, still using unsafe drinking water. Or the millions of people living in poverty. Or the, or the 114 million around the world who don't have access to basic education. Or, or what about, like in our current moment, Jesus's name getting dragged into conspiracy theories and violent marches on the Capitol? What about the millions of people who go hungry every day? What about the millions of people who are caught up in slavery even to this day? What gets you angry? We live in a world where people get angry about things that do not matter. And we don't get angry about things that do. And the church, the church of Jesus needs to get angry about the things that God gets angry about. In the scriptures, God gets angry about injustice and about a lack of mercy and a lack of compassion, about greed, about the wasting of your life, about idolatry. 
about Christian nationalism, about racism, about white supremacy. I I, want to say something, and this may feel slightly like a detour in this moment, but I could not escape this as I was preparing the message for this week. I want to say that our church, in one form or another, You've only been around for eight, nine years, but like has been calling this out, been calling out this Christian nationalism and this idolatry that we see. It's not that we don't need to continue to look at our own sin. We don't need to continue to see where we are complicit in the, the, the brokenness of our world. And so I say this though with all grace, but with truth that the Christian nationalism that has swept like a, over a part of modern evangelicalism has never been welcome at Sanctuary Church ever. In fact, over the years, it's continued to make us angry. And that at its best moments has led us to loving, merciful, justice-seeking, peacemaking. I was reminded of this passage in Luke 4. Uh, We're told that Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. And here he is quoting Isaiah. And it's a passage about the coming Messiah who, of course, Jesus is going to claim to be. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says that he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, this is about me. And then they begin to ask, like, isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what he have heard, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. There's a whole thing going on here where basically Jesus is anticipating their sort of rebuttal to all of this. Like, if you really are who you say you are, um, like, Like, show us. He says in verse 24, Truly I tell you, he continued, the prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed. Now, the crowd is then furious. Furious, it says, when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town. Now stay with me for a minute. Jesus quoted this passage in Isaiah as a way of saying, I'm the Messiah. And as a way of referencing the true calling of the crowd, this crowd that's gathered around him, this Jewish people that are there right in front of him. He's reminding them of their calling and what the scriptures say. In this passage, Jesus points out what happened in the days of the great prophets, which these people would have respected. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha. But he reminds them of what's actually there in the text. 
He says, if you're unfamiliar, <laughs> like Elisha was sent to help a widow, but not a Jewish one, like not one in our tribe. Elisha healed one solitary leper, and the leper was the commander of the enemy army, the enemy army. It appears that that's what ticked the crowd off. That's what drove them to fury. To this crowd, Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. The crowd was waiting for God to liberate Israel from Rome, from the pagan enemies. And so in all sorts of Jewish religious texts of that time, we find this longing that God would condemn the wicked nations and would pour out his wrath and destruction upon them. Instead, here you have Jesus pointing out that in the past, when the great prophets were active, which he's claiming to be one, in fact, claiming to be the greatest prophet, it wasn't Israel. It wasn't this uh, crowd's tribe that benefited, but outsiders. Luke tells us here that the people were astonished at the words of sheer grace. Sheer grace, one translation says, that were coming out of his mouth. N.T. Wright points out that uh, a famous scholar, he says, they must have been astonished that Jesus was speaking about God's grace. Grace for everybody, including the nations, instead of grace just for Israel. This Jewish tribe, remember, the Hebrew people were called to be a light to the world. Jesus is reminding them of all of that and that the servant Messiah that he had just read about in Isaiah and that's all throughout the scriptures had not come to inflict punishment on the nations, but to bring God's love and mercy to them. Jesus' claim to be reaching out with healing to all people was not what that crowd wanted and not what that crowd was expecting. In fact, Jesus' severe warnings were always for them, for his countrymen, for his tribe, unless they could see that this was the time for their God to be gracious, unless they abandon their futile dreams of a military victory over their national enemies. They were gonna suffer defeat. Defeat at every level, military, political, and, and spiritual. Sometimes, sometimes the message of Jesus will not be welcomed by other followers of Jesus. Sometimes people will miss the radical call of the good news of God's grace. Sometimes you, you will be misunderstood and even hated by your own. The way this story ends in Luke has been on my mind all week. It says they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And then it says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now we don't actually see Jesus get angry here, but it's hard for me to imagine he wasn't. Here's why I say this all. 
is that sometimes beautiful, righteous, redemptive anger means not getting distracted from the mission, not getting distracted from the call. Like Jesus said elsewhere, just wipe the dust from your sandals and keep on going. So, think about the things that you get angry about. Every day I scan social media thinking a lot of people are looking for a fight because they aren't actually in one. They're not in the right one. I mean, just on a personal level, like if you still find yourself getting more ticked off at, I don't know, football refs than you do about anything I've just mentioned, like we need to check ourselves. If you find yourself in traffic and person in front of you like waited an extra millionth of a second to move on that green light like if you have a gossip problem like do you have boiling a boiling reserve of anger like that's just sort of always there are you looking for a fight because you aren't in one I have found that the people who are following Jesus are free of petty irrational responses They have perspective. Do you, do we have a sense in this moment of what matters most and what doesn't? When you are engaged with healing and acts of hope and joy, when you are helping people who have been downtrodden and pushed to the outskirts and to the fringes of society, when you... um, are getting in the game versus just spending all your time commenting on someone else. Like when you begin to do this and step into the redemptive movement of the way of Jesus, it immediately puts things in perspective. To kind of wrap this up, Garrett Kaiser says in his book, The Enigma of Anger, he says, Jesus, his, his is the zeal of an ego identified with something larger than itself. He is not incensed over some personal insult, but by communal sacrilege, like a violence or a wrong, which he feels bound to take personally. See, Jesus has aligned himself with with what his father is doing. His call is the kingdom of God. Look, there will always be things to complain about, and there will always be people who need your help. There will always be annoyances and there will always be the great commission, right? Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, including the parts about getting angry about the right sorts of things. And he concludes, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We need to embrace the simple truth that we were made to give ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. And so can you see how all of this talk about redemptive anger might relate to these words from Jesus in his kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Often, Not always, but often it's those people with deep resolve to join God in making peace. Those with a passion to demonstrate and announce the way of Jesus in our world. It's these people 
who so often turn anger at the injustice and brokenness of our world into a life of peacemaking. Every once in a while, I stumble upon a person who talks about Jesus followers like they are these like hate-filled people trapped in tradition, exclusive, uncreative, disengaged from the real problems of the world. Every once in a while, I find myself, or a lot often, I find myself again looking at social media and seeing, <laughs> seeing the brokenness pop up again and again in followers of Jesus and just going, I, I can't believe this. I can't believe that person is claiming to speak for Jesus. It makes me furious. It pisses me off. And as I've sorted through my calling over the years, I realize that this anger drives me. I get sick and tired of people who say they are speaking for Jesus who have completely lost the plot. Anyone else? I want my kids to live in a world where people think of Christians as people who actually follow Jesus. That when there's conflict in the world, people go, well, we gotta call in those Christians. They're a weird bunch, but they know how to make peace. Those Christians know a thing or two about peacemaking. I want them to be hated by the right people for the right reasons. I've come to realize that that anger drives me. I've found that when I reflect on this, like that, that the, the, the righteous anger, the beautiful anger, it helps me deal with and it helps me redirect all of the petty stuff that wells up in my heart. I, I guess you could say, I want to join God in bringing healing and restoration and renewal to my world because I'm so angry. Let's take a moment right now. To allow like the words of this song, which call us to our citizenship in heaven, which call us to our primary allegiance and thus giving us a perspective of what, it, uh, of what we're to be angry about and, and how we are to engage and how we are um, to address the brokenness that we see around us. Uh, as we take a moment to reflect on um, the centrality of our call, regardless of what's happening around us. Let's take a moment to sit with this, with this song, and then we'll come back and set up our time for communion.